You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 82, by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Becoming Fully Human, The Significance of Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life, Six Lectures, translated by Jeff Martin. This is Lecture 5, entitled Important Anthroposophic Results, given at The Hague, April 11, 1922. My lecture today will be, in a certain respect, the opposite of yesterday's lecture, since I will have to speak about what can be seen supersensibly in the way I characterized it yesterday. However, I will have to ask you to excuse me, since I can, of course, only quite aphoristically emphasize some of the unlimited areas of anthroposophic research results. Thus, the whole of today's considerations will only be a kind of collection of details, which will be picked out as examples. The first thing that is achieved with respect to the human being through the three supersensible levels of cognition, which I characterized yesterday, is that the human being can appear before the soul's eye, E-Y-E, as a complete total being. I have already mentioned the first supersensible level of cognition, the level of imaginative cognition, and I already indicated yesterday how through this imaginative cognition that time organism can be seen which is found as the first supersensible entity in human beings, namely the body of formative forces existing in time, which indeed organizes us, but as a supersensible organism does so during the time between our birth or our conception and death. I have, however, already noted that at the moment when imaginative cognition becomes active, the difference between subjective and objective comes to an end in a certain respect. So that when we are spiritually contemplating our body of formative forces, we are at the same time standing within the whole etheric activity of the world. We become, as it were, a member of the etheric cosmic organism. We then, in fact, stand less apart less outside of this cosmic, etheric organism than we do in our physical organism in relation to the other natural facts and natural beings which surround us in the physical, sensory world. If we then ascend to the inspired cognition characterized yesterday, we extend our seeing beyond what is within us initially between birth and death. We extend our vision to what we can call the actual human soul-being. We learn to cognize this soul-being in its development within a spiritual environment before it descended into a physical human body. By further developing this inspired cognition into what I described yesterday as intuitive cognition, we get to know the fact of death. The transition of our soul organism through the gate of death into a spiritual world. Thus, unbornness and immortality unite in the cognition of the eternal essence of the human soul 
by way of inner vision. At the same time, however, we see at this moment, when we have risen to intuitive cognition, the true form of our I, our Self. I will still have to speak about this view of the Self, preferably in tomorrow's lecture. But you see, from what I have characterized, that we come to the view of a purely spiritual world, first of all of our own spiritual essence with its surroundings. However, we already have a share in this spiritual soul world during our life on earth. It is always there. It is always around us, as has already emerged from yesterday's characterizations. We have a share in it with our total human experience. This total experience is divided into the waking state and the sleeping state, with the dream state in between. When we speak of waking and sleeping, we actually already touch upon a very significant riddle of existence, especially in the life of the human being. This riddle has been tackled many times, also on the part of purely physical research. And as in other fields, so also in this one, no dilettantish opposition should be made against what is put forward with a certain right by natural science. But these scientific theories and hypotheses are mostly those. I do not need to enumerate them, for today I want to stick more to the positive presentation of anthroposophic results, which always proceed from certain presuppositions that I may say can be held only partially but not totally in respect to even the simplest unbiased observations of life. Thus, for example, when the transition of the human being from the waking state to the sleeping state is explained, the greatest importance is usually attached to fatigue. And although natural science has reason to see in fatigue a cause for the transition into the state of sleep, this is not always the case. For I have met rentiers who, without it being possible to say that they have acquired reasons during the day for a particular fatigue, fell asleep at the first words of my evening lecture. And not only on such occasions, for which there may be understandable reasons for falling asleep, but they also fall asleep during many an extraordinarily stimulating sonata. So even a simple unbiased observation of life can tell us that fatigue cannot definitively be the only cause, the only reason for the state of sleep. I mean, someone who finds their way a little bit into the observation of the phenomena of life without any supersensible research, as I will characterize it later, must observe how in sleeping and waking there is something connected with the human being in the physical world such that sleeping and waking belong to this being as a rhythm of life. Just as the pendulum swings to one side and then to the other, so we must assume that human life as a whole takes place in these two states, waking and sleeping, as in a pendulum-like rhythm. I do not mention this as a proof, but as something that you could also come to as a possible interpretation. But this will lead us over to the next step, where I would like to describe the soul's spiritual state of sleep and wakefulness from an immediate view that can be acquired with the help of the three levels of cognition I characterized yesterday.
When we are engaged in imaginative cognition, we come to know the etheric body, the human formative forces body. That is, we learn to look at our first supersensible entity. Then we get to know the actual soul, which flows through birth or conception into our physical body and also into our body of formative forces. And we come to know this soul as it flows out through death into the spiritual world. We come to know this through inspired cognition. And then we come to know the actual I being, capital. I would like to say we come to know the deepest center of our human being through intuitive cognition. If we now apply these three forms of cognition to the observation of sleeping and waking, we realize that it is only during the waking state, when we are fully awake in mental images, that we have in a certain sense, for the normal earthly life, the physical or space body, the etheric or time body, the actual soul being, which I said yesterday could also be called the astral body, and the I, capital, joined together within each other. As a physical being, the sleeping human being is only joined together with the body of formative forces. These two members can be observed through sense perception and imaginative cognition. During sleep, the actual soul being, the astral body, and the I have essentially stepped out of the physical body and the body of formative forces. And from falling asleep to waking up, they are in the same sphere in which they were before descending from the spiritual realm into a physical embodiment on earth. Thus, during sleep, these four members of the human being, that is, the physical space body and the formative forces time body, and then the eye and the astral body, the actual soul, are, I would say, separated into two parts. Now, however, if we want to understand how the sleep state relates to the waking state, we have to acquire an inner view, which can be attained through the characterized stages of cognition, of what is actually present, let us say, during sleep. The physical space body only carries out what the time body does. All those life processes that are carried out in the physical body by this etheric body can continue from falling asleep to waking up. These are all those processes that are connected with the plastic formation of the human being, especially during childhood, which are connected with nutrition, with metabolism. But now during sleep, those processes that are connected with mental picturing, with thinking, feeling, and willing, cannot be carried out. One sleeps into a state in which the life of mental picturing is dimmed, in which feelings are silent, in which our will becomes powerless to carry out anything in the physical world through the physical body and the etheric body. If you now observe through supersensible cognition what is outside the physical body and etheric body as I and astral body, the latter being the carrier of thinking, feeling, and willing, then you find, above all, that the conscious activity of waking has sunk down into an unconscious one. The human being is in an unconscious state. 
Therefore, it is only through supersensible cognition that you can see from the outside what has gone out of the physical and etheric bodies. If we want to characterize what is actually outside the physical human being during sleep, then we must compare it with something else. When the human being is in a completely dreamless sleep, we can only compare it with the same activity that is present in the will of the waking human being, in the impulses of the will. The impulses of the will, as I characterized yesterday, also proceed in such a way that we live in our consciously awake thoughts but have no knowledge of the inner nature of this will. I said yesterday that when we intend to do something, for example to raise our arm, we have the thought and this thought then flows down into our organism and the will grasps the arm there, if I may express myself trivially. But in our ordinary conscious waking life, we have no awareness of how this happens. The arm is raised. We again only see the result. The mental image of the result is a new mental image. But we are as clueless regarding what lies between the mental image of an intention and the mental image of the result in respect to an impulse of the will as we are regarding what goes on in deep dreamless sleep. For supersensible observation, however, that which is present as I and astral body outside the physical body and the etheric body during dreamless sleep is in exactly the same activity as the will during waking life. During sleep, a decisive willing is expressing itself, but the activity of mental picturing is dampened. We will investigate later why this activity of mental picturing is damped down. During sleep, this willing, the same that is asleep when we are awake, is quite active, only it is now outside the body. It cannot move the arms or the legs. It cannot use the body as a tool. But this will is powerfully present. And what is the main characteristic of this will? It is desire, which can then grow into wishes and the other different nuances we are familiar with. It is precisely desire and wish that are active in what is outside the physical body from falling asleep to waking up. And you have to ask yourself, what is the desire for? If we can observe through supersensible cognition this flowing, whirling, and surging of desire in the spiritual human being who is outside of the body, then we come to the question, what is this desire, this craving, directed toward? It is directed to nothing else than to the physical body, to the re-grasping of the physical body. You basically want unconsciously, from the time you fall asleep until you wake up, because you are outside, to get back into your physical and etheric bodies. And then another question arises. These questions naturally arise only when we use imaginative, inspired, and intuitive cognition. The question arises, why then does this spiritual human being outside of our physical body not immediately satisfy this desire to return again into our physical body? 
The reason, and the moment of falling asleep, leads us to this understanding, is that when we want to enter the waking state, to take hold of our physical body as soul being, as an I with an astral body, we cannot do so because we have become tired of this physical body which brought us into connection with the outer world. We are, in a certain sense, satiated with this possession of the physical body after a certain time. Not only are we tired of the possession of the inner organs of the physical body, but this physical body carries the sense organs too, and it is through them you participate with your eye and astral body in sounds and colors. You participate in the words you hear from other people. If you do not want to be thus absorbed, and if you have no possibility of escaping in any other way from the impressions coming from the outer world, then you withdraw from the impressions of the outer world by falling asleep, like the rentier of whom I spoke. Thus from the moment of falling asleep until the moment of waking up, oversaturation with the physical body and desire for the physical body pulsate into each other within the human soul being. And only when the oversaturation has completely disappeared can the desire triumph over the oversaturation. And there we return into the physical body, thus waking up. I do not have time to describe why, for example, we wake up when the alarm clock wakes us up and the like, or why some people cannot sleep. You can also experience these things, but for now I can only describe the general principle. Thus, when we consider the alternating states of sleeping and waking, we are actually dealing with a swinging back and forth between an inner inclination of the human soul to be in the physical body and to no longer be in it. We are dealing with an oversaturation, hence the leaving of the physical body, and with the desire to return to the physical body. For supersensible research, this desire for the physical body is especially interesting to study. A particularly intensive amount of this desire for a physical body is also discovered at the time when the soul, descending to earth from the spiritual soul world, again approaches physical embodiment. Between death and a new birth, when it is on the way to birth, the soul develops in such a way that from all the states it has gone through previously, it forms above all a certain emptiness toward its spiritual environment, and an intensely strong will element, namely desire, for the physical earth. Thus we can, in a certain sense, study again the last states the soul goes through when it inclines to a new earth life, just by studying the time between falling asleep and waking up. Here we have a simple explanation from supersensible research for the alternating states of sleeping and waking, one that is not based on a physical state but refers to the soul. This explains waking up as primarily the satisfaction of the soul's desire for the physical body and falling asleep as its oversaturation in the physical body. We thus arrive at soul qualities that explain the transition between sleeping and waking. 
let us now consider dreaming. First of all, one-sidedly, because, as I said, we cannot explain everything today. Let us consider dreaming when waking up. When we observe the human soul, from falling asleep to waking up, with the will-being whirling in it, we find that when it begins to return again into our etheric body and into our spatial physical body, at the same time thoughts begin to flash up in us. During the normal awakening process, the human being slips relatively quickly into the etheric and physical bodies. In these we have the tools for our thinking, feeling and willing. Thinking which is dampened during sleep makes use of the senses and the nervous system as external tools when the human being returns to the physical body. Feeling, which is also dampened during sleep, is upon waking immersed in everything that is rhythmic in the physical organism. For example, rhythms of breathing and blood circulation and also rhythms present in metabolism. In general, the metabolic rhythms play a role in circulation. Thus we can observe how in the soul's disposition for thought, thinking power is submerged in the nervous system, and what is of a feeling nature is submerged in the rhythmic system. With regard to the nature of the will, which is thus primarily active during sleep and is thereby connected with the alternating activities of material substances, I would like to say that there is no boundary between inside and outside. Human beings, however, are outside their physical bodies during sleep. All that is outside is will. But this will passes through the boundary of the body in relation to the metabolism strikes through the boundary of the body and into the body. Thus, even during sleep, the will activity embraces the metabolic system. It is only then outside of sense activity and thinking, but with our will nature we are completely submerged in this metabolic system. Now we can observe how the soul nature of the human being comes down into the etheric and physical bodies. If it happens that through some slight abnormality, the soul nevertheless coincides with and takes hold of the etheric body before the physical body is taken hold of, then the human being does not immediately enter completely into the body. The soul then only submerges itself in the etheric body. However, the etheric body infuses only the liquid components of the body. Thus the soul remains outside the solid components. But in these moments, when we have not yet fully taken hold of the physical body, but have only taken hold of the etheric body, these are the moments when the soul, which comes over from the state of sleep, can only partially make use of the physical and etheric bodies, and that is when dreaming arises. The complete awakening arises only when the physical body is fully seized, that is, when all the organs of will, and especially the sense organs, are fully seized. Thus dreaming occurs when there is a partial seizure of the physical body. But precisely when we observe, through supersensible research, this coming over into dreaming, then we can observe this dreaming quite especially through imaginative cognition.
which is not itself dreaming, but is a completely conscious cognition, as conscious as our normal daytime consciousness. In this way, we can observe, especially what takes place objectively in a dream. We can then observe how the human soul takes hold of the physical apparatus. For when the soul is removed from this physical apparatus in our present existence, it is just not strong enough to exercise the thinking activity. It needs a certain support, a physical tool, with which to unfold the thinking activity. Thus, when we are immersed in the physical tool, thinking is then really exerted through this physical tool. Then, however, if we also observe feeling with inspired cognition, both a completely dampened feeling during the sleep state, as well as feeling in the waking state, which is also a kind of dream-weaving, for feelings are not as fully conscious as mental images, then, however, we come to significant differences between thinking and feeling. Only now do we notice these differences. If we actually observe the thinking human being in the waking state with imaginative cognition, we perceive that the nervous system is continuously active during thinking. The nervous system is plastically, sculpturally mobile, so that basically everything of a soul nature is absorbed into the nervous system. When passing from the state of sleep into the state of wakefulness, that part of the soul that becomes the human thinker disappears. It disappears into the nerve-sense system. This is not the case with the feeling human being. That part of the soul that constitutes the feeling human being submerges itself into all that constitutes the rhythmic organism but not completely. We can even say concerning feeling, although this is only approximate, that just as much soul remains outside the physical body and etheric body as is submerged into them. There is a continuous back-and-forth movement between the soul and the body in this feeling activity. And this continuous back-and-forth is expressed in the rhythmic system itself and that part which constitutes the will nature of the human soul, being, also submerges itself into the physical body during the waking state, but not in the same way as thinking submerges itself into the nervous system. It submerges itself into the physical organism and into the body of formative forces, but it does not unite with them. Even though it slips into the physical body, it remains a separate being, so that we can say human beings in the waking state have a strange polarity about them. If we look especially at the human nerve-sense organism, we find it developed in such a way that, while awake, the soul is completely submerged in it. It has almost completely disappeared into the organism as thinking soul. And if we look at the working of the will while the human being is awake, then we see this will actually separate, one part beside the physical processes and one part in the physical organism. These take place as two activities that are indeed in the same space, but as activities that are strictly separated from each other, so that through such research methods we actually gain an insight into how, as a being of will, we are inside our body 
in a completely different way than we are inside it as a thinking being. This becomes especially clear when we really approach the observation of the awakened human being with developed imaginative and intuitive insight. After all, when you have completed the exercises I mentioned yesterday, you are in a position to observe yourself from without. Thinking is strengthened. Thus, it is made independent of the physical body. In ordinary consciousness, you must completely submerge yourself in your physical body, that is, in the nerve sense apparatus. But the achievement of supersensible cognition consists in the fact that we now learn to think without this physical apparatus. That is the essential thing. We are too weak as human beings, without the support of the body, in normal sleeping consciousness, to be able to rouse our souls in sleep in such a way that we can develop the thinking activity. This is precisely the success of the exercises described yesterday, that the soul becomes so strong that it can think without the body. In this state, however, in which the soul can think without the body, it can also see the body. Just as you see something that is outside of yourself, as you know that you see the table with your eyes, so too do you look back with imaginative, inspired, and intuitive cognition at your physical and etheric bodies. You are there within yourself only as a soul being. You are what you otherwise are in unconscious sleep, but now conscious. And now something very peculiar occurs. It happens that we do not see everything within this physical body. Only the nervous system is objectively visible to the soul. Seen thus, from the outside, the human being is a nerve-sense being. Our nervous system, together with the senses, becomes visible from outside. I emphasize this because it has played a role, although not in these evening lectures, but in many of the day lectures. I emphasize this because not only the so-called sensory nerves, but also the so-called motor nerves become visible, and it is precisely at this stage of cognition, through direct observation, that we arrive at this research result. There is no difference in principle between sensory and motor nerves. The sensory nerves are there to mediate the perception of the external world through our senses. The motor nerves, which are also sensory nerves, are there so that we perceive the position and the presence of our limbs within ourselves. That we have within ourselves a perception of ourselves is mediated by the motor nerves, which are actually sensory nerves in this respect. Such research results arise on this path of soul research. Thus, on the one hand, you have now attained in this way to the greatest extent what belongs to the human nervous system. You have it before you like an objective thing. On the other hand, everything that belongs to the metabolic system is not seen as an objective thing. In intuition, it is seen as pure spiritual being. There the material disappears. And now you learn to cognize this peculiar process in the wakeful human being, the total process that actually takes place there. You learn to cognize it in this way. When you gradually orient yourself, first through imaginative cognition, 
You come to know how you lift yourself out of the physical body. Now not unconsciously, as in falling asleep, but consciously. You feel, as it were, this lifting out of yourself, out of the brain in particular. Then, as you pass over into inspired cognition, you come to the point where, apart from lifting yourself out of the brain, you notice how the brain now becomes something separate from you, and there you reach intuition. You really reach that point where you see objectively what you have before yourself as the human nerve sense apparatus. But now you also see the whole process of ordinary thinking. Yesterday I already attached great importance in anthroposophic research to the fact that while the human being develops a second personality, the spiritually seeing personality, common sense still remains. The ordinary personality remains intact. Otherwise the human being does not become someone who cognizes the supersensible, but someone who hallucinates. While observing how you lift out of yourself your logical thinking, which otherwise adheres to the sense world, remains in the brain. You ascend out of the brain only with what you are as a higher spiritual being. That is why you do not see in the whole nerve sense apparatus a lump that just hangs there, but rather a process, something that takes place continuously, that is continuously in process. You can see that when you look back like this. Then something very strange appears, which shines fundamentally into our entire world of cognition. I beg your pardon if I now say something terribly heretical. It only appears to be. In reality, it arises directly as a consequence of the continuation of natural scientific thinking into the realm of the spiritual. We can observe, namely, that out of the spirit that comes over when we awake in the morning, when the soul enters into the physical body, material substances are continuously deposited into our nerve-sense being between the parts that only relate to matter. These deposits are directly taken from, created from out of the spirit itself. You become a witness to the emergence of matter, to the plastic formation of material substance in the human sense apparatus. There, matter is created out of the spirit. The human being becomes, according to our soul spirit, not only an inhabitant of our nerve sense apparatus, but we become, by depositing matter that is formed directly out of the spirit, a creator of substance. This is heretical because it violates a principle of today's natural science. But this appears so only because it does not arrive at its ultimate consequences, which extend to all beings. The world consists of beings, not only of lifeless facts and objects. Natural science has abstracted from the processes of the inorganic world and at most the plant world the so-called law of the conservation of energy and matter, as if matter must be there once and for all and can only be rearranged this way and that. This is in a certain sense true for all the other kingdoms of nature. In the human being, however, a real creation of substance by the nerve sense apparatus actually takes place. 
read in the first pages of scientific texts which are written today out of an incomplete knowledge. It is stated today that the law of the preservation of matter is valid also for human beings. This is based on an illusion. The law is valid, but how? If you look with intuitive cognition at the will in the human organism, that part of the organism that consists in metabolism, then a process that I would like to call an organic process of combustion continuously destroys matter. Thus, while the human being develops thinking and normal consciousness, matter creation takes place. While the human being develops will, matter destruction takes place. Healthy human life is based on the fact that just as the left balance beam corresponds to the right one, matter is continuously created during thinking and matter is destroyed, used up, thrown back into nothingness by the process of willing. And so it seems as if, for the human organism, the law of the conservation of matter also applies, because always as much matter is created, is formed, as is dissolved. In this way we advance such a law as the law of the conservation of matter, which is quite correct. Thus armed with the means of a supersensible cognition of the human being, we arrive at really seeing through the quite specific nature of the human being in connection with the physical and with the soul spiritual. In a certain way, the human being becomes transparent in this way. But then, which path do we actually take? If you pursue the human organism with today's physiology, the methods of which are not to be disputed by me in an external respect, for they have their great merits and results, but these results are for the most part themselves questions, which again pose riddles. If you merely pursue the human organism with these external research methods, then you have only one side of the human being, and then you must formulate hypotheses about how things actually happen, about what goes on in the metabolism, about what goes on in the nervous system. These hypotheses actually tend to presuppose something that is unknown perhaps exists only in lawful connections. The materialists indeed believe in this. In reality, however, it is not through such hypotheses that we arrive at what the metabolism and the nervous system actually depend on. We only arrive at this through direct observation of the soul spiritual itself. And so, you see that in relation to the human being, only comprehensive research which does not sin against natural scientific research, but simply extends and enhances it, is able to put into perspective by starting from the whole human being what physiology and biology otherwise bring to light. And on the path of this research, we come to the extraordinarily important results that I presented in my book titled Riddles of the Soul, Collected Works, Volume 21, a few years ago after it had been the subject of thirty years of intensive research. That part of our being, which is mostly nerve-sense apparatus, is the carrier in the waking state of our thought life. Then we human beings are rhythmic beings, breathing rhythm, circulation rhythm, and other rhythms, and this is the bearer of our emotional life. Finally, we are metabolic beings, 
and to the metabolic organism belong the limbs. Metabolism is only a continuation, inwardly, of what goes on in the limbs. The metabolism is the carrier of the will element. This has nothing to do with the nervous system, but only with the process of metabolism. Thus, we come to recognize the human being as a threefold being. The actual inner essence of the human being is based on the fact that we are such threefold beings, in that we have the thinking part of the soul completely submerged in our nerve sense apparatus, we may actually be most materialistic with regard to thinking. And the ordinary psychology of today also comes to see in the brain, in the different structures of the brain, faithful images of thought life. It does not succeed in doing so for the emotional and volitional life as it itself admits. We can see that we may be most materialistic with respect to the life of mental picturing, but we cannot get further with pure materialism. We cannot go farther in the right way if we imagine the brain on the one side as a finished organ, and on the other side somehow the soul, which now makes use of the brain in order to form thoughts. Things are not at all like that. It is like this. Thoughts have intrinsic beingness. They are only too weak to be active, for example, when the thought part of the soul does not have use of the brain, as in sleep. But when the soul takes hold of the brain, it does not use it as a finished organ, but it continuously forms this brain by what takes place in the brain as a process. These brain furrows are in a perpetual process. This is, at the same time, an activity of the soul. Therefore, when we examine the brain, we can only progress if we imagine that the brain is a picture of the life of the soul, and so far as the life of the soul is a thinking life. This is more important than we usually think. This is immediately confirmed when we investigate and really see how any brain physiology is researched today. And when we see the effects of these different parts of the brain, They are not at all such that we can see that the soul merely uses them, but they are such that they actually represent the life of the soul. They are images of the life of the soul. Thus we can say that the brain is actually like a realized, materialized imagination of the life of the soul. It is an image, while the rhythmic organism has not made it to the level of image. The metabolic organism, which is by all means something unplastic, something unimage like, has made it to this level least of all. You achieve the possibility of understanding the brain structure if you understand it as an image of soul life. Brain physiology will only be on a healthy foundation when we are able to understand the brain in this way, as materialized imaginations. However, the rhythmic organism, for example, must not be understood as materialized imaginations, but as inspirations that are taking place externally in a process, in an operation where the spiritual and the material continually play rhythmically into each other. 
and in the metabolism. We have before us a continuous passing over of substance into spirit, and from the spirit into substance, according to the one or the other pole. It must be admitted that today it is still somewhat tricky to say these things, for of course if one stands only within what today's current biology and physiology demand, which are not yet consistent in themselves, one sees in the things I am indicating only fantasies, if not something worse. But if some things are known, we have an obligation to stand up for these known truths. And then from out of the human being, other aspects of our whole world can be reached. Let us go down from humankind to the animals, for example. First of all, it is a question of really getting to know an animal's being, of not only speaking about it from the outside, but of really getting to know it. In the case of the human being, if we really want to recognize ourselves organically, according to our nature, we must speak of a threefold being. Only the three members are not next to or beside each other. An unspiritual professor wanted to ridicule the threefold nature of the human being by saying, quote, Steiner distinguishes between the head, the chest, and the abdomen, as if these three members were like three boxes or cabinets stacked one upon the other. Close quote. This is not the case at all. The head is primarily a nerve sense apparatus, but the rhythmic and metabolic systems play a part in it. The chest is primarily a rhythmic organism, but the other members play a part in it. It is like this also with the metabolism. The three members lie within each other, not separated from each other. Anyone who characterizes them as separate from each other, either as supporters or opponents of the idea, does not arrive at the truth. Now, things immediately become different when we come from humankind to the animals. An animal is not a threefold organism. This is especially evident when we look at it with imaginative, inspired, and intuitive cognition. Strictly speaking, the animal is a twofold organism. In the animal, the rhythmic organism constantly plays into the nerve sense organism on one side, so that in the head pole of an animal, there is not such a differentiated sense organism as in human beings. There is less differentiation, less separation of the nerve sense apparatus from the rhythmic system. It is the nerve sense apparatus that is constantly pulsated by the rhythmic life. And the metabolic system is again pulsated by the rhythmic organism. The rhythmic organism is not as separated from the other two systems as in humans. Human beings have a thinking organism or nerve sense organism and then the rhythmic organism and the metabolic organism. The three organ systems are formed in a relatively differentiated way from each other. In animals, however, the nerve sense organism is present, the metabolic organism is present, but they form an immediate polarity. The rhythmic organism is not so strictly separated, but is more absorbed in the other two systems, so that in the animal there is a kind of twofoldness of the whole organism. Our head, in relation to the animal, does not tend toward having a special formation. 
Here, the essential thing in the formation of the human being consists in the fact that our rhythmic organism tends to have a special formation. It makes itself independent. It thereby pushes out the head organism on the one side in a more differentiated way than in the animal, and on the other side the metabolic organism. Thus in humans there is a more intensive metabolism than in the animal, where the rhythmic organism plays continuously into the metabolism. If you study the animal and the human organization in this way, you come to the conclusion that the human metabolic organism is a different being than the human nerve sense organism. In the nerve sense organism, the soul is completely submerged. We therefore have in consciousness only our mental images, our thoughts. Yes, we even feel a certain unreality toward these thoughts. Thoughts are only images. The most perfect part of the human being is the head organism, but here the soul spiritual is most deeply submerged in the physical. We can be most materialistic with respect to the organization of thinking of the nerve sense organism. For what remains of the spirit for us are only images. In our thoughts we have pictures of reality. Whoever understands how the spirit is completely diluted, if I may express it this way, to the level of an image, and how initially the spirit lives in the awake human being, will indeed see in the thought life a clear proof that there is spirit in the human being. But you will not address the thoughts themselves as spirit. You will address the thoughts as images which the spirit produces by submerging itself for the most part in the nerve sense apparatus. There it only throws back, reflects back what then remains an image and appears in consciousness as a thought. Thus we learn to see completely into human nature and accordingly also into animal nature. But then in this way, when you come to cognize the sleeping human being through imaginative, inspired and intuitive cognition, the soul spiritual being is outside the body. Then you also come to have self-knowledge through imagination, inspiration and intuition. With this human self-knowledge, insofar as we are outside the physical body, the difference between subjectivity and objectivity ceases. We then belong to the cosmos when outside the body. If we can look back on ourselves and recognize ourselves, then we can also observe the cosmos. And then such observations result in a real cosmology, a cosmosophy, as I have tried to present in my book, Title and Outline of Esoteric Science, CW 13. These are direct results of observations that are made through imagination, inspiration, and intuition while outside the physical human body. And the correlate to this is a complete knowledge of humanity. Now it would be interesting to extend this observation also over the plant kingdom and over the mineral kingdom, but there is no time for that. Today I would like to refer to some other areas. I can only give examples. I would like to start from the fact that we can follow the metamorphosis of the human organism in the way I indicated. We can observe how our material organization as a nerve sense being 
is a result of the soul-spiritual life on the one side, and how on the other side, toward the metabolic organism, we are not such a result. For the spiritual life there, in the metabolism, just when it is most active as spiritual life, continuously burns matter up. We see how we, as human beings, metamorphose ourselves. We see how we materialize, spiritualize, materialize, spiritualize. If through supersensible cognition you enable yourself to follow this passing of the organs through metamorphosis, then you learn to follow them not only with reference to their healthy state, but also with reference to their diseased state. Here I would like to point out to you first only one such direction. The moment we become acquainted with the spiritual world surrounding us, through the empty consciousness mentioned yesterday, what before was only the object of sensory observation becomes the object of spiritual observation. Just as the human being appears to be transparent when observed in this way, then also the whole world, the cosmos, becomes transparent before our spiritual gaze. When, for example, on the one hand, the sun appears above us, we normally see it through ordinary observation and know it through ordinary science. As it is presented to us physically, according to sight, it appears as a firmly limited, sharply contoured body. On the other hand, there is a spiritual sun-like quality which is not confined to the part of space that we see with the physical organs, but which as a sun-like quality fills the whole cosmos accessible to us. This sun-like element pervades all realms of nature, including humanity. It is something that works in the human being. And just as we otherwise study in physics how the etheric sunlight penetrates through the eye, E-Y-E, in that we study the effects of light through the physical apparatus of the eye, so now can we also study the spiritual part, the sun-like spiritual part of the sun's effects. But we find it again in all the inner organs of the human being. And we become aware that in a large amount of these organs, actually in all the different organs, there is a tendency more or less toward the one pole of sprouting and budding life, a life pressing for growth, an ascending life. This begins with little sprouting power and increases with a sprouting power in formative growth, in nourishing, also in digesting, in consumption, and so on. On the other hand, in all the organs, there is also the other pole, a descending life, a degeneration. Every evolution is opposed by a devolution or involution. In the ascending life of the organs that we have in us, the solar life that is spreading through the cosmos is working. The descending life can be observed especially in the brain. Through the fact that matter is continuously being sculpted into the brain, through the activity of mental picturing, there must also be a continuous breakdown process starting precisely from the brain. And then again, the lunar forces have to do with this breaking down. For the moon is not only what it appears to us physically, 
that is only the physical embodiment of what lunar-like pervades the whole cosmos accessible to us and penetrates into us and into all the realms of nature. We are thus able to study, let us say, in the kidneys, the heart and the lungs, in each individual organ, the solar process and the lunar process. We study the ascending, the fructifying and growing, and the descending and degenerating. By this we comprehend each individual organ from out of the cosmos. There will not be a complete total physiology until the human organs are all understood from the spirit of the cosmos in their ascending and descending life. And just as we can understand the internal human organs from what is solar and lunar, so we can also understand other impulses of the cosmos. That which is healthy belongs to the ascending life, and that which is ill to the descending life. The centripetal and centrifugal forces depend on other impulses in the cosmos than the solar and lunar. I only wanted to give this as an example. These solar and lunar elements also creep into the animal kingdom, into the plant kingdom, and into the mineral kingdom, into all the kingdoms of nature. Through this we come to a study which finally culminates in this. I study a human organ in a certain metamorphosis. I find it is not in a normal condition. For example, the human respiratory organs are not in a normal condition but are in a condition of hoarseness, with a cold. I study this condition. Thus, in popular terms, I would say I study the condition of a common cold. What is there in this case, in the human being? In reality, that which is otherwise supposed to be limited to the human senses, that which is supposed to prevail as forces only in the senses, has, as it were, slipped down into the respiratory organs. They metamorphose pathologically in such a way that they become too much like sense organs. The sensory, which otherwise should be only in the sense organs, slips down into the respiratory organs. They sporadically become sense organs. Thus they are sick. Where does this come from? It comes from the fact that what can otherwise have a particularly strong effect in the sense organs, namely the lunar element, outweighs the solar element. This is then transferred out of the cosmos to the air, to other climatic conditions, so that out of the human environment such pathological metamorphoses arise. And now I observe something in outer nature. For example, I look at the lilac, a violet flower with special petals. If you study this plant, if you get to know it inwardly, you will find that especially those forces are active in it that have the sun-like and moon-like effects in exactly the opposite sense than what acts pathologically in the case of the common cold inside the human being, as in the case I have described. You learn to cognize how the peculiar interaction of sulfur-like forces within the essential oils in the lilac plant stand in a polar opposite relationship to what forms pathologically in the human organism. 
If we thus learn to cognize from out of the spirit the metamorphosis of the human organs, if we learn to cognize from out of the spirit of the cosmos again the special force effects of the environment, then we come to a rational theory of remedies, to a rational therapy. As in other sciences, in which we do not simply experiment but have a real overview of things, we can now indicate which remedy is suitable for this or that disease. I can only sketch the process, but in this respect anthroposophy can throw light everywhere. It need not depend on merely experimenting with this or that remedy for this or that disease. Rather, we see the connection of the remedy with the disease out of the spirit of the cosmos. This is a very simple case, but this can be applied to the whole of pathology and therapy. Today I can only hint at the axiomatic, but working along these lines, we already have a fully developed pathology and therapy in anthroposophy. There are also institutes where things are empirically and externally verified, places where we can, on the one hand, convince ourselves that those remedies which we draw from cognition of spirit and nature, prove to be effective. But this is only if, on the other hand, we are able to diagnose the diseases correctly. Anthroposophy does not find such a thing in a botched, dilettantish, amateurish way. It acknowledges what modern medicine has brought. It only continues to build on it. But it can be built on and much can be gained for the salvation of unhealthy and healthy humanity if medicine is built on in this way. Here, as in so many instances, which I cannot touch on today, anthroposophy flows directly into the most important areas of practical life. Now, in conclusion, allow me to give just a few more examples of how one arrives at anthroposophic research results. I regret that I cannot give more, but I would like to give at least a few examples so that you can see how our scientific spirit can become universal when we shape it anthroposophically. History, for example, is usually looked at in such a way that we record the external facts or take what is available in documents about external facts and then perhaps draw some conclusions from them about the spirit of the age. After all, it comes down to this, quote, what you call the spirit of the times is the gentleman's own spirit, which is reflected in the times. Quote. But you believe yourself to be quite objective historically if you compile the course of history from external documents. However, if you ascend to such cognition as I characterized yesterday and as I have demonstrated today with the application of individual examples, then you also really arrive at observing the other, the spiritual side. After all, perceptions are available to us from nature. There we do not need to search for perceptions. We must make our thinking as strong as is needed in order to master the perceptions, so that these perceptions reveal their laws through observation and experiment. But what about the spirit? Yes, since the time of the older instinctive insights, which were not fully conscious as are today's anthroposophic insights, and which have now become merely tradition 
and can no longer be applied by humanity, the spiritual has basically lost its whole content, however little we want to admit this today. It is interesting that within German spiritual life, where we now always draw the latest conclusions from the directions taken by intellectualism, there is a philosopher, Fritz Mautner, who even out-Kanted Kant. He wrote a title, Critique of Language, in which he tries to prove that we actually have no spiritual content in what we say about things. We can only speak words. Critique of language, not critique of reason. And for someone who can see even a little into the realities of the world situation, this is not even so unfounded. As obnoxious as his critique of language is, Fritz Mautner is simply more honest than others. These others do not admit to themselves that they have only words when they speak of thinking, feeling, and willing. For these words must first receive a content through supersensible cognition. And as for the psychologists, they also have no content. Take any modern psychology and read an explanation about what a thought is. We talk about thoughts because we have the word thought from older times. But there is nothing more in it that relates to the spiritual. There we must first arrive at a perception. And we come to this only when we develop the slumbering forces in the human soul, as I characterized it yesterday. Then we will be able to follow the laws of the spiritual development of humanity in a way that is similar to how we follow physical laws in natural science. There is, for example, the fundamental biogenetic law, as was emphatically expressed by Haeckel. Certainly, this has undergone many corrections. I know the current state of research with regard to this basic biogenetic law, but essentially it can be said that in morphology, in the developmental stages that the human embryo passes through from conception to birth, until it is a fully formed human being, the development of the individual animal forms are repeated, are recapitulated. When the fertilized human egg is three weeks old, it is similar to a little fish, and then it becomes more and more similar to other animal forms. It is only an approximate law. As they say, ontogeny, the development of the individual being, is a shortened repetition of phylogeny, the development of the whole ancestral stream. Now, even if one has to correct this law in certain ways, it is, nevertheless, a given that a certain relationship exists between the outer physical perception and the organic nature of a being. But on the other side, the side of human historical development, such lawful connections can be arrived at in a similar way. One who has reached a certain age comes to realize this, but it is something that belongs to the whole of human life. Therefore, we can observe in ourselves at a later age something peculiar, something strange in human nature. This can already be seen by unbiased observation which is then, however, corroborated, made clear by supersensible cognition, if we are capable of it. We notice that when it comes to the aging of a person, all kinds of abilities could be there. 
These abilities actually want to develop inwardly, but they cannot unfold. There is, so to speak, such a strong calcifying tendency in people today that certain formative forces within the inner being cannot come out. They are only hinted at. That is why someone who today is really suitable for self-knowledge feels, with respect to aging, this slipping away of certain abilities that actually want to develop, but are overwhelmed by the hardening organism. They cannot come out. And if we pursue this further, if we go back in the evolution of humanity, we come to times in this evolution when these faculties could still unfold, when the human organism was still different from what it is today. A superficial view of nature today believes that the human organism is exactly as it has always been, as it was, for example, with the ancient Egyptians and earlier. We do not think of the fact that also in historical and prehistoric life, this human organism, in its inner deeper structure, its histology, has been constantly changing, becoming more rigid, more sterile. If we go back to earlier times and follow what elderly people were able to produce in terms of literature, poetry and art, we also find outwardly empirical confirmation of what I am now saying. If we go back to older times, we find that people had indeed gone through a certain development up to a much older age, where the physical and the spiritual developed in parallel. In children today, we can see very clearly that their soul abilities develop in parallel with their physical abilities. When children come to the change of teeth, strong changes of soul take place within them, and again, at sexual maturity. Anyone who still has a capacity of observation for such things finds also in the beginning of the twenties again how human physical changes still proceed parallel with soul changes. But then this becomes, as a whole, indistinct. Toward the end of the twenties it ceases completely with people of today. In a certain sense we become stationary, with respect to our mental and emotional capacities. We develop a spiritual life. We can even perfect it. But the body no longer supports us in it. We no longer go through the same kind of development as in ancient times. If, with the methods I have described, we go back to the Greeks, we can uh, directly observe their historical past spiritually, just as we can observe our own soul's past before birth or conception. By looking back into Greek life through imagination, you realize how it actually became possible to produce an Asclepius, a Sophocles, and a Phidias. Then you realize that the whole life of the soul and body must have been different. There must have been a different way of feeling into the world, of living into it. This is due to the fact that until the middle of their thirties, Greek physical bodies were similar to our youth today. By the end of their twenties, people today cease to have support anymore from their physical body for their spiritual life, whereas during ancient Greek times they would have had such support until the middle of the thirties, as their lives were ascending.
and if we go further back, two or three millennia, before the mystery of Golgotha, we find human beings. Anthroposophic research can recognize this through direct observation who well into their forties were as dependent on their bodies as a child today is until sexual maturity. And we find that in prehistoric times people co-experienced their bodies right up to old age. But what does this mean? It means that today we experience our body when it is in the process of ascending growth up to the age of thirty-five when it is in the process of descending, of degenerating, it no longer participates in the soul's development. There, we perceive nothing through the power of the body. Just as when the body decays, we no longer perceive through it. We have already become independent of the body. Yes, whoever still studies in the Vedas what lives in them as their wonderful style, their strange spirituality, which also lives in other similar spiritual productions of this age, will also find externally confirmed what anthroposophic research can verify. There were times, ancient times, in the development of humanity when human beings experienced in their physical bodies, and not only in the ascending period of life, a parallel with their active soul being. In the ascending life, we are half-numbed by the sprouting, growing life, so that we do not look into the spiritual world, while as the body decays in the decaying body, we look with the soul all the more spiritually. There were times when human beings still experienced the decaying body, and by seeing in the decaying body, they saw with the soul all the more spiritually. In that period, which today people are inclined to describe as prehistoric, as if it were primitive, which it certainly was not, people still lived up to their fifties and sixties in such a way that their spiritual life was dependent on their participation in their physical development, and as well, again, in their body's descending development. Thus there was a certain mood of life in these ancient peoples. When they were young, when they were still children or youth, they looked up at the elderly and said to themselves, Oh, these older people, by growing old, they experience something that I can only know as an elder person. They are growing into a spiritual world while their body is decaying. In the most ancient patriarchal times, they looked up to the elders, saying to themselves, They grow into a divine spiritual world simply by virtue of their physical development. Oh, they also lived quite differently in relation to growing old, in that they knew, if I become old, then I become a wise person. There were exceptions, of course, but there are also exceptions today in youth. Think of the mood that is poured out over a society when we look up to the patriarchs in this way, because we can then have something that we cannot have in youth. Thus we see epochs in the historical development of humanity where humanity becomes younger and younger, if I may express myself so. At first, people took part in their physical body up to an old age. Then we see people who took part in their physical body until their forties. Then the Greeks, who took part in it 
until their thirties, and thus came to the boundary, that great turning point, where they could begin to look into the decaying body and thus express that wonderful harmony of body and soul in their works of art. Now humanity has become even younger, though such an expression is unusual. I mean to say that we live consciously with our physical conditions now until the 27th or 28th year. In this respect, humanity will become younger and younger still. While we can therefore say that in relation to our physical embryonic development, we repeat phylogenetic development from the simplest to the most perfect living being, the embryo goes through this from the beginning to the end, the reverse development takes place for the life of the soul. In former times, we went through the whole human course of life right up to an advanced age. Then this regressed. Now only in their youth are people mobile, inwardly and soulfully alive through their bodies. This is what we notice when we grow older and actually want to form what once really could be formed in a time when the physical organization was quite different. And, just as the human embryo in the third week is similar to an earlier phylogenetic state, so our human soul development in its present state is such that it appears as if earlier states had degenerated, had atrophied and been lost. It is a regression. While embryonic development, in a physical sense, is a forward development, spiritual development is a backward development. This is connected with the whole development of humanity. As humanity used to be dependent on the body in its historical development, we are now more and more instructed to emancipate the soul from the body. The body increasingly works in us only as a youthful body. Thus we are instructed to develop from within, through spiritual soul development, that which humanity formerly only developed through the powers of the body. Thus, what the body does not give us in old age, the soul must carry up into old age. In this way, pedagogy must be transformed. All human development must be transformed. Yes, if we get to know such laws, and there are many such laws that work as impulses throughout the development of humanity, throughout the development of history, if we get to know such laws, then there is also the possibility of learning something quite profound for human life from the viewpoint of a history that is thus spiritualized. The necessity of today's pedagogy and didactics in relation to the pedagogy and didactics of earlier epochs of human development simply results from the fact that humanity receives less and less from the development of the body as it ages. Increasingly, we only have from the body what was developed in youth. We must therefore replace, through the development of the spirit, working into the body, what no longer comes of itself. If we find the right pedagogy, the right methodology, in order to bring the soul to life, then we can really educate and teach in such a way that, for example, we do not simply receive concepts in school that are ready-made with finished contours. That would be like keeping the hands and arms as small throughout life 
as they were as a child. Teaching the child ready-made definitions and concepts is like trying to bind the limbs of the human being so that they cannot grow. We must give the child such concepts, such mental images and sensations as can live and grow so that in the fortieth, sixtieth year, through their own inner development, they are no longer the same as before. This possibility exists. It is sought in the pedagogy of the Waldorf School. There, out of an understanding of the human being, we ask not only about the child, but also about the whole human being. We ask how children must be educated so that they can benefit from education throughout their lives, so that they do not have to say to themselves when they are thirty years old, Now I have learned, but my concepts have remained childish dwarfs. They do not grow. We must transmit to the child such living mental images, such living concepts and impulses of will as are in a continual process of growth, such that they are properly formed only at a later age. In this way we can learn intensively for life directly out of a real spiritualized contemplation of history. And if today it is said that people learn nothing from history, it is because we cannot learn much from it for it does not say much beyond a compilation of data assigned to earlier epochs and composed only of externalities. Thus, anthroposophically-oriented considerations lead into the inwardness of life by providing perceptions in which spiritual entities are not merely words, but also have spiritual substance. I have only been able to give you a few rudimentary examples of the results of anthroposophy's research. They are what we first get to know of the human being, and what we get to know of the universe from out of the human being. Through the correct application of higher cognition to the human being, we also come to corresponding life practices that extend into social life, as I tried to show with the example of pedagogy. Thus we may also think in a similar way with regard to what we have considered this evening. For as I have already stated at the end of another consideration, anthroposophy does not want to be a theory, does not want to be a one-sided doctrine. It wants to be something that is drawn from life, and that because it is drawn from life as a whole, from bodily, soul, and spiritual life, can in turn also serve the whole of human life. For a worldview will only properly serve life if it itself is life. For this must be maintained, not abstract thoughts, which are in themselves inwardly dead. Tomorrow I shall have to speak more of the deadness of thoughts. Not thoughts which are dead, but only those thoughts which pulsate with life can also serve life. Only a worldview that does not live in dead thoughts but that is itself alive, can serve life. For only life itself can be the true servant of life. The end of Lecture 5